Chapter 3 Young Folks History of the American Revolution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colonel Gary Bohannon. GaryBohannon.com. Young Folks History of the American Revolution by Everett Tomlinson. The First Bloodshed. It was in North Carolina, May 16th. 1771, when the first real battle between the colonists and the forces of the king took place. During the troubles with the French, the people of North Carolina had been very true to their own rulers, and not only had they furnished many men for the war, but at times had voted large sums of money for the soldiers. Their loyalty, however, had apparently not been appreciated, and long before the passage of the Stamp Act, they had been becoming angry and restless. The men in the North were in reality contending more for the principle than they were from any personal suffering they had been compelled to undergo. But in North Carolina the people were suffering greatly from the personal injustice and oppression of the officers of the king. The judges were corrupt. The public officers did not seem to care for anything except obtaining by every means in their power the largest sums of money possible from the people, who for the most part were poor, and altogether there was scarcely a man in the colony who had not suffered from the rapacity of those who were in control. When the Stamp Act itself had been enacted, the North Carolina men had been as bitter in their opposition to it as had their northern friends. To make matters still worse, Tryon, who afterward became the loyalist governor of New York, was, in 1765, made governor of North Carolina. And a more vain, arrogant, and unjust man probably had never been known before in the New World. Colonel Ashe, who, at the time, was the energetic speaker of the lower house of the North Carolina Assembly, and well knew the feeling of the people, informed Governor Tryon that the Stamp Act would be resisted to the very last, and furthermore that it ought to be resisted too. The governor dismissed the assembly, but when in January 1766 the sloop of war Diligence sailed up the Cape Fear River with its stamps on board, Colonel Ash himself was one of the men who marched at the head of the local militia to Brunswick, where the sloop had come to anchor, and boldly declared that the stamps must not be landed. Tryon, meanwhile, had directed the men who had been appointed to distribute the stamps to go to the Diligence and apply for them. As soon as they learned that the officials were coming, the resolute militiamen left part of their force to guard and watch the sloop, and the others, taking with them one of the boats that belonged to the diligence, started for Wilmington. They put a flag in the boat, then placed the boat on a cart, and with the mayor and many of the prominent men of the town in the procession, to say nothing of the small boys, marched through the streets with Colonel Ash still at their head. They marched straight for the governor's house, and then began to shout and call for James Houston, who was the stamp master, to appear. Very naturally, he did not long delay, and as soon as he came out of the house, the crowd hurried him to the public marketplace, where the frightened man declared, taking a solemn oath, that he never again would have anything to do with the stamps. The old records inform us that he took the oath, quote, voluntarily, unquote, but the crowd of excited men were not perhaps just the best judges of that. At all events, they were apparently satisfied, and after giving three cheers after the manner in which all true Americans have ever expressed themselves when their words have been used up, they led the frightened man back to the house of the governor, and then dispersed, doubtless feeling very well satisfied with what they had accomplished. Governor Tryon was frightened when he found out what the people had done, and as he was a man who wanted to be popular, in spite of his cruelty and tyranny, he thought he would make everyone good-natured again if he gave them a great barbecue. He had an ox roasted for the occasion and barrels of beer provided, 
but the very first thing the men did when they came was to throw the ox into the river and pour all the beer on the ground not satisfied with that they proceeded to make fun of the governor and that he could never forgive so he called upon his friends including some of the officers of the diligence to stand by him and there was a disturbance which almost might be called a riot that lasted for seven days during which one man was killed what course events might have followed of course we do not know but the repeal of the hated stamp act served to calm the north carolina people and for a time everything seemed to be quiet but the peace did not last long the men were becoming more and more restless and finally the sons of liberty under the leadership of a quaker named herman husband who had refused to take off his hat and bow low before the governor when he chanced to meet him drew up a written complaint which also called for a general meeting of delegates of the people to discuss the condition of affairs and consider what might be done this was considered only fair and reasonable and so a meeting was held but as not so many delegates were present as was desired another meeting was called at this second meeting it was declared that quote, the sons of liberty would withstand the lords in parliament unquote, for so ran the preamble of the resolutions and measures were adopted which practically declared that the people of the colony could and would if it became necessary govern themselves at least as far as the civil laws were concerned that was the beginning of what was known in north carolina as the regulation or the regulators which became a very strong body and had much to do with the history of the colony how vain and foolish governor tryon was was never better shown than by a demand he made at this time upon the assembly which for the most part was made up of men who were willing tools in his hands. He told the assembly that he wanted $25,000 voted, with which to erect a palace, quote, suitable for the residence of a royal governor, unquote. The money was voted, and also $50,000 additional, and so the royal residence was erected at Newburn. The angry people, who already were paying taxes that were very heavy, were made still more angry by this extravagance. They declared that Lady Tryon, the governor's wife, and her sister were the ones who had demanded the fine house that they had been compelled to pay for, and the anger became still greater. Lady Tryon, who must have been a very fascinating woman, if half the stories told of her are true, tried to make peace with the people by giving grand balls and many great dinners in the palace. Some of the people, of course, accepted the invitations to be present on these occasions, but the very luxury they witnessed usually made them forget what a good dinner they had had, and so they went away feeling more angry still. The regulators now began to make themselves felt, and they assembled in such force that the governor was alarmed, and sent word to them that if they would disperse, he would call a meeting to talk over the troubles of which they complained. And as the people had not yet lost all confidence in him, they consented very readily. It was not long, however, before they learned of their mistake, for Governor Tryon sent a force of thirty horsemen to arrest Herman Husband and William Hunter, the leaders of the regulators, and before the surprised people were fairly aware of what was being done, they learned that these two men had been cast into jail. This action roused all the men of the region, and under the leadership of Ninian Bell Hamilton, a sturdy old Scotchman seventy years old, they marched to Hillsborough to free the two men who had been confined in the prison there. The governor's men, when they learned of the coming of the regulators, were frightened, not knowing just what the determined men would do. However, they very quickly decided to set the two prisoners free, and then just as the angry people came to the bank of the stream on which the town was located, the leaders of the governor's men came to the opposite side. There, taking his stand, the leader, who was a man by the name of Fanning, and very much hated by the North Carolina people for his injustice and cruelty, held up a bottle of rum in one hand 
and a bottle of wine in the other, and called out to Hamilton not to come any closer, but to send a horse for him to use in crossing the river, as he wanted to treat him and have a friendly talk. The sturdy old Scotchman was not to be cajoled by any such foolishness as that, and it would seem as if Fanning might have learned that the, quote, treats, unquote, given by Governor Tryon and his wife, had had the effect only of still further increasing the rage of the determined people. At all events, Hamilton not only refused the proffered refreshments, but declined as well to send over a horse for the official to use, and shouted, You're none too good to wade, and wade ye shall if ye come over. So the governor's men waded across the stream, which was not very deep, but at first their bottles and words were alike rejected. Finally, when the others too had crossed the river, after a promise had been given that if the regulators would disperse, every grievance of which the patriots had complained should be redressed, the assembly yielded and dispersed. Within a day or two a petition was drawn up in which the matters of which they complained were set forth, but to the surprise of the regulators, the angry governor refused to pay any attention to it, and told the colonists that they ought to be content with the privilege they had of paying taxes. It is true that he tried to flatter and cajole the people, but when he sent his officials to collect the taxes, those servants of the governor were very glad to get away without having any of their bones broken, to say nothing of not having been able to collect any of the money said to be due for taxes. Then the governor held court, declaring that justice should be measured out to all, to his own officials if they had done nothing wrong, as well as to others. He had marched through the country at the head of the troops he had collected, but the people were not very badly frightened and were also not very backward in showing how much they detested Tryon and his menials. At last the court was held. How deeply interested the North Carolina colonists were is apparent from the fact that more than 3,000 people assembled near the courthouse at the time of the trial, though they were so quiet that Tryon ought to have perceived that it was like the lull before the storm. At the trial, the Quaker, Herman Husband, the leader of the regulators, was acquitted, and Fanning, the governor's right-hand man, was fined one penny on each of the seven charges of extortion brought against him. Indeed, the governor promised to pardon all the regulators except thirteen, for even then it seemed as if there was something magical in that number. Some of the English writers delighted to make fun of the Americans for cherishing the number thirteen as they did, and one writer in particular afterwards declared that General Philip Schuyler was bald on the top of his head except for thirteen hairs which his good wife, Mistress Catherine Schuler, carefully preserved and braided into a queue every morning. We can afford to let them laugh today for the thirteen colonies have shown that instead of there being anything to fear in the number thirteen, as some people have superstitiously believed, perhaps it is the best of all numbers. Governor Tryon, however, had no thought of magic or superstition when he left only thirteen of all the regulators to suffer for daring to rebel against his authority, for he was hoping that his clemency would be appreciated and order would be restored in the colony. But order was not restored, though there were few organized outbreaks. The people steadily refused to pay the unjust taxes, and drove away the collectors and even beat some of the more bitter Tories. Indeed, it must be said in all fairness that the regulators committed many acts of which doubtless their leaders were afterward hardly ashamed. This was due not to the desires or plans of the leaders, but to the fact that in every movement of the kind there are always some men drawn into the excitement from no other motives than a desire to make trouble and perhaps a hope of gaining something for themselves in a time when laws are being broken and property is changing owners. At one time the regulators assembled in force and declared they were marching to set Herman Husband free, for they had heard that he had been cast into jail again. The governor hastily put his palace in a condition to withstand attack, 
for he believed the angry men would now lay hands upon him, and the frightened assembly voted him $2,000 to expend in raising troops. But the regulators disbanded without doing any damage, and so peace was apparently once more restored. But it was only apparently. For as soon as Tryon understood that he was really not to be attacked, he at once issued a proclamation forbidding anyone to sell powder or shot until he should give permission. This was the most foolish thing he could have done, for it only made the regulators furiously angry. So angry were they that Tryon felt that now he must do something more to assert his authority and restore quiet in the regions where he had heard the regulators were making a deal of trouble. And at last, with some artillery and baggage wagons and three hundred trusty militiamen, the governor set forth from New Bern in the spring of 1771. His little army received reinforcements from the Tories on the march, and his friend General Waddle was ordered to collect more men and join the governor's forces. While the governor was waiting for some powder to be sent to him, some of the regulators blackened their faces and fell upon the men who were carrying the powder to the governor, and after their attack there was no powder to be sent on. They fixed a trap for General Waddle, too, for they sent him a message while he was marching that it would be better for all concerned if he would turn back in his tracks. A good many of his men did so, but the general and a few of his men managed to get away and at last joined the governor's army. As soon as Tryon heard of what had happened to his friend, he started with his force towards the Alamance, where he understood that the regulators had assembled and were waiting to meet him. On the 15th of May, 1771, the regulators sent word to him suggesting that matters might still be adjusted and demanded an answer within four hours. Governor Tryon promised to send one at noon on the day following. As we know, the governor was a very vain and stubborn man. He utterly failed to understand the people of the colony. But at this time he was made very angry by hearing that Colonel Ash, who had at one time opposed him, but was now on his side, and several others whom he had sent out as scouts, had been taken by the regulators and severely whipped. Not even the leaders of the patriots approved of this act, and the only excuse that can be given is that the regulators were very angry that one who had been their champion should now have joined the side against which they were contending, and that is really no excuse at all. Without waiting for the hour to come when he had promised to give the regulators a reply to their demands, Tryon and his little army crossed the Alamance before it was fairly light on the following morning, and marched swiftly and silently toward the camp of regulators until he was distant from it about a half mile, and then he formed his line for battle. Aware that the militia were upon them, and still being very desirous of avoiding bloodshed, some of the regulators advanced to Tryon's lines and begged that the pleas of the patriots might yet be considered, and that no fight should be permitted. Tryon was too angry to be reasonable, and sharply declared that he would now receive nothing but an unconditional surrender. Indeed, he went still further, and held as prisoners some of the men who had come to him for the conference. One of these was so indignant at such treatment that he told Governor Tryon to his face just what he thought of him, which was certainly a very foolish thing to do, no matter how just his anger may have been, for it is usually better to suffer wrong than do wrong, and never yet has one wrong made another wrong right. Truth was the very thing that the vain governor least loved, and so enraged was he by the outspoken words that he seized his gun, and before anyone realized what he was about to do, he had shot the prisoner, who fell dead at his feet. Probably Tryon would have given much to recall the act as soon as it was done, but that was impossible. The regulators had seen murder, and now they were almost beside themselves with rage. When the governor sent a flag of truce to them, they fired upon the men who bore it. In vain did their leaders beg of them to disperse. They were like madmen in their range, 
and the worst of it was they had too much justice on their side to make them willing to listen even to counsels that afterward they knew to be wise. Tryon's rage had instantly returned when he beheld his men shot down. With a voice choked with passion, he turned to his soldiers and shouted, Fire! The militiamen hesitated. The men before them were friends and neighbors. Some of their own blood relatives were in the ranks. It might be all well enough to differ in opinion, and even to go to law over their quarrels, but not yet were they ready to shoot down their own friends and kindred. Doubly furious when he perceived his command was not obeyed, Tryon rose in his stirrups and glanced back at his men. Just then a loud derisive laugh came from the regulators, and a shout daring him to fire upon them was heard. This was more than the vainglorious governor could endure. Shouting to his followers, he said, Fire! Fire on them or on me! A volley immediately was poured into the ranks of the regulators, and the cannon were brought into the action. The sturdy patriots returned the fire, and evidently Tryon was their target, for his hat was carried from his head by a ball. Perhaps sobered by his own peril, he once more sent forward a man with a flag of truce, but the regulators were in no mood to listen, and the bearer of the flag was shot. There was a forward rush of the patriots, and they even seized some of the cannon, but as no one knew how to fire them, they were useless in their hands. The fight was now begun in earnest. The regulators were fighting, every man for himself, for Herman Husband, who up to that time had been their leader, now declared his Quaker principles would not permit him to enter the battle. Men fell dead or wounded upon every side. There were cries and cheers, and, and, for a time, the patriots held their places behind a ledge of rocks to which they had retreated. At last they were driven from the shelter, and the battle was ended. The regulators had had nine of their number killed, and the militia had lost twenty-seven, and large numbers on each side were wounded. After the engagement, Tryon became more savage and brutal than ever. His cruelty found free play as he confiscated property, burned houses, destroyed crops, and offered rewards for the bodies of the regulators, quote, dead or alive, unquote. What the end would have been we cannot say, but Tryon was just then sent away to be governor of New York, and Josiah Martin, his successor, was a man of peace, and soon quiet was restored to the colony. But the first real battle of the Revolution was fought between the forces of Governor Tryon and the Regulators near the Alamance in North Carolina on the 16th of May, 1771. End of chapter 3